Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast. Great to have you in on a Monday. Well, it's uh, the anniversary uh, and a tragic one at that and one that really shook America. There's two dates that I always remember. September 11th, right? If we say that, we know what we're talking about. And mine also is November 22nd. It's hard to remember other dates. I can't remember the exact date Princess Diana died or Joe Carter hits the home run. But we always remember If you're of my generation, you're kind of an 80s kid, uh, born in the 70s, the Kennedy assassination. So we'll talk about that uh, with Dr. Eric Cam on the show. We also react to the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. And whether this was the justice system falling down with the verdict itself or whether or not, it's the laws that already exist surrounding the justice system that are the bigger problem. They sure have been the problem for a longer period of time if you are to make that case. Lots coming up on the podcast. Uh, You will enjoy it. Thank you very much for finding us. Feel free to subscribe, rate, share. Uh, We appreciate you doing all that. Here's Toronto Today for a Monday morning. First day of school for 49 rookie MPs in Ottawa. 49 rookies. That'll happen when you have an election every two years. You'll see more turnover than you usually would in a federal election. It's going to be an interesting day today, given uh, there are circumstances clearly around some of the opposition MPs. Um, and I don't, I think we react a little bit differently, a little bit differently now when someone pops a positive case, when we know they're not vaccinated and we should, um, but this is going to be an interesting day in, to see how many conservative MPs are operating via Zoom, how many can't get into the House of Commons. Because this is where we're at. This is like let the House of Commons, those hallowed halls in Ottawa are going to get treated today like your gym, like your swimming facility, like your kids hockey game, like your local restaurant or pub. That's I don't know that they'll be serving beer around 11 a.m., but that's not the worst thing in the world when we think about Canadian federal politics. Got to make it a touch more interesting sometimes. But bottom lining it, the everybody else has a fully vaccinated staff. Fully vaccinated roster. That's what the expectation is coming in today. Are there issues? Always, always within parties. Of course there are. Um, This Kevin Vaughn character is going to sit there today as an independent. And I know how that sits with a lot of people in Toronto and a ton of people in his particular riding. Something doesn't feel right about it. Something doesn't feel right about how he got elected. And I'm not casting aspersions on the credibility of his accuser from two years ago. Um, who accused Kevin Vaughn of um, some, you know, egregious forms of sexual assault well in the guise of a consensual relationship, I should add. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about still pretending when it came to Election Day that the liberals had his back, that the liberals wanted him to sit as a member of the federal government. So, look, there's there's interesting issues all around. The People's Party of Canada didn't win any seats. They won't be a presence today. There have always been these questions about, well, what if they were? But Aaron O'Toole and the Conservatives are bringing, including him, 119 people to the House of Commons today. But are they? Because there is no guarantee and obviously enough whispers out there that this is not a fully vaccinated party. And you have to be vaccinated or you have to have a proper medical exemption. And the idea that several conservative MPs would have valid medical exemptions, there's no math that works for that. None whatsoever. It's the same as Aaron Rodgers saying it a few weeks ago that he has a medical exemption or he he has um, an allergy to the mRNA vaccine. Well, there's only 32 starting quarterbacks in the NFL. What are the odds that one of 32 has it? And this just isn't about how he feels and how he thinks. So it's an interesting day in the House of Commons for many, many reasons today. I'll say this also. They're electing a speaker today um, because they have to. And one of these seven candidates I heard on my drive in is former Green Party leader Elizabeth May. Wow. I don't know that that's going to sit great with an awful lot of people who look at it from the NDP. She makes the case. Hey, listen, I got no partisan ties. I'm here as a leader of the Green Party. I'm interested in being, I saw her comments over the weekend too. Uh, I'm thinking about, you know, being the the speaker of the House of Commons. I think that would be a remarkably polarizing decision. Um, She obviously was in Paris. She was at the uh, COP21 conference. Okay, fine. But she's got to be 
in the House of Commons and be physically present during the vote. So um, she missed the vote. She or sorry, she was uh, in Paris at the time when she wanted to do it in 2015. Now, the COP26 international conference just happened and she was there for that also. But this is going to be a really interesting scenario. Um, When you put up the speaker, you lose that vote. And Trudeau is probably going to not want a liberal as the speaker. He wants all his MPs available for voting. And that would be all 160 uh, MPs. They gained five seats based on what happened last time out. Uh, O'Toole stayed static at 119. The Bloc stayed static at 32. The NDP gained a seat, um, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, obviously there's more than enough um, ammo for the liberals and Justin Trudeau to have a full cabinet. They want every vote that they can get in the House of Commons. And no big business is going to get done between now and Christmas. There are important things. But I think that's the one element where Trudeau, and he's been good at this, can push back on O'Toole and say, you got a positive case already. You've got people that won't be in Parliament that will be participating via Zoom. How is this still possible? And Aaron O'Toole obviously fought up, fought off enough stuff. Last week, early in the week, if you remember, was the Nadise Batters business, the senator from Saskatchewan. And we talked about that a fair bit on the show with Michelle Rempel-Garner, one of the star MPs, saying, we don't need this right now. We do not need this kind of headache or controversy heading into um, an, a time when we should be laser focused on the liberals and Justin Trudeau, laser focused on backing Aaron O'Toole and letting letting the protocols fall where they may. There has to be a process here. Jason Kenney's going to go through it in Alberta with a leadership review. This is not terribly uncommon. But what they didn't need was Senator Batters popping off and making a well-produced video basically assailing Aaron O'Toole's character. And that wasn't just, hey, guys, should we think about this? That was a character assassination. And it obviously had backing, not just from batters, but from others. And it's up to O'Toole to sniff out and figure out who those others are. So that's happening in the House of Commons today, for one thing. Let me shift to this. And Friday, obviously, was the reaction to the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict. We knew it was probably coming on Friday afternoon or evening. It couldn't go into another weekend. And you can imagine it was um, full of people that were angry, full of people that were uh, vitriolic about it, uh, and obviously people that were celebrating it. And I don't know what way to put it better than uh, my often guest on this particular show, former U.S. Congressman Joe Walsh, who was a ardent Republican, um, still considers himself right-leaning but makes the case uh, and, and, and but he split with Donald Trump and has no interest in the modern Republican Party, zero interest whatsoever. And Joe Walsh makes the case that uh, it's so split and there's no winners here and there is nobody that emerges victorious. Surely Kyle Rittenhouse doesn't. And it's going to be interesting to see where Kyle Rittenhouse goes from this point in time. Is he uh, a pawn of, you know, the right wing media? I know he's doing an interview with Tucker Carlson tonight. By the way, I'm going to play a clip from you from that interview, an exclusive clip later on the show that uh, that, you know, the Fox News folks released. But I think it tells me something about the mindset of Kyle Rittenhouse right now. Um, But no question in my mind, there's just no winners here in this particular verdict. And America has to keep having these tough, honest chats about race. Okay. And uh, D.L. Hughley said on Joe Walsh's podcast called White Flag, here's the quote. We need principled white people to lead on race. No progress until whites listen, learn and lead. And he's probably right about all that. He's probably correct. There's a lot of people that looked at this particular verdict. And to me, reasonable people can disagree on the verdict. I, it wasn't the verdict I wanted to see, but I also knew that it was the verdict that was coming. But there shouldn't be much celebration about this. There's a systemic racism problem within the U.S. justice system. Check that particular box. Rittenhouse is no hero. Check that particular box. He went looking for trouble, and he did find it. But from a legal perspective, I saw the video. He was attacked. He was knocked down. He turned his gun on the people that he believed attacked him, including one of the people that actually did. And I wish it was a different outcome. I wish the laws were different so there'd be some element and we could argue about term and responsibility and the charges that 
that should be pushed his way, charges that should be filed against him, charges that he should be convicted of. We can have those reasonable people, reasonable discussions about that. But what I don't think can be denied is the idea that he went somewhere looking for trouble, found it, and yet the laws as they are do dictate, fair or not, the law to self-defend, the law to open carry. I disagree with elements of especially the second law, but he was never going to get convicted. He was never going to get convicted. Um, There's a parallel there with the, do you remember Ray Lewis, the Baltimore Ravens player who was charged with murder in the first degree after uh, a, a Super Bowl, before the Super Bowl he played in and won with the Baltimore Ravens. He was charged with the deaths of two men. He had two first degree murder charges. He and two of his colleagues got in some sort of fracas, okay, that left two other men dead. But Lewis was charged with first degree murder. And that was another case of an overreach and an overextension of a prosecutor. They were never going to get a first-degree murder conviction against Ray Lewis. Bill Maher said this in reaction to the verdict on Friday night on Real Time with Bill Maher, and I think it's significant. He calls out Kyle Rittenhouse for what it is and yet documents the idea that there it just can't be this way. So we need to change the laws as opposed to putting Kyle Rittenhouse in jail for 40 years. Some might want both, but you weren't going to get both under the current circumstances. Here's what he had to say. This. What about the message this sends to all the kids who, like I say, I think this kid watched too many comic book movies. I think he wants to be some sort of hero, and I think there's lots of incels out there like him who will do the same thing. And it's just, it's a tinderbox. I mean, I read today 46% of people in this country, according to the Zogby poll, think a civil war is likely Half the country thinks a civil war is likely. I don't think it's a great idea to say to people, you know what, if if the police are not doing the job as they weren't at that moment in Kenosha, the answer can't be, then the citizens have full police powers. That can't be the response, right? No. That's not the way to go, but that's how America is set up right now. Joining him on that panel is the new mayor-elect of New York City. He hasn't been sworn in yet. He made the point on both sides he went there both sides of the political fence and he's a black man about to become the mayor of new york city that hasn't happened in a while since david dinkins was mayor eric adams made the point to bill maher that they've got people absolutely on both sides skewing what the important issues are for all americans and it's delaying progress educate our children and to be game not convict somebody My plea to America, we must take our country back. We are allowing the fringe elements in both of these conversations to really hijack what everyday Americans want. We want safe cities, educate our children, and to be gainfully employed. When you have this division that is just ripping us us apart, when I'm really concerned uh, there is a, a, I believe there's an anarchist group in this country. The only desire is, is to continue to pull out our, our cities apart. When I saw police vehicles being firebombed, when I saw the destruction of property that's happening, we have a place in Portland where there's a city in a city. This is America. Yeah, Eric Adams lays in there and, and documents everything that people want. And think about the three things he said. Ask them if that applies to you. You want to live somewhere that's safe. You should never apologize for that. Don't ever apologize for where you live or where you came from. Don't do that. Educate our children. Okay, Give them what we were able to get. Give them something better than maybe we were able to get and be gainfully employed. And that's not always going to land. You're going to bounce maybe from job to job. You're going to get opportunities. You're going to miss out on opportunities. You're going to go gain other opportunities. One door opens, one door closes. But the option has to be there. The option has to be there for that to be uh, a potential option. That's really all people want. Okay, saving the world and making sure there's justice here and justice there and making sure that you fit in your little social media box. That's not important. That's not what most people actually care about. It's the three things Eric Adams mentioned. By the way, here's something I know I won't get to. So I'm going to do it right now in 30 seconds. There were a couple great stories on the weekend about the Rogers family and all that internal battle, right, with uh, with Martha Rogers and Ed Rogers and all that stuff. And part of the uh, Globe and Mail story, and I'm, uh, this is great reporting. It absolutely is by Jason Kirby. Documents the fact that um, in terms of takeovers for the companies, uh, Ted Rogers 
wouldn't recognize um he would not recognize a spouse he defined spouse he would not allow a common law spouse um so my girlfriend from 1995 wouldn't qualify who i lived with that didn't work out so well or a same-sex spouse and i'm going let me get this straight a uh man born in 1933 wouldn't recognize gay marriage before he died is that news is that really news? To, this is a little like Chris Rock going, let me get this straight. Donald Sterling, the L.A. Clippers owner, doesn't doesn't love black people and doesn't want black basketball players hanging around his, his girlfriend. Is that news? That's Chris Rock saying that, not me. Is this Ted Rogers <laughs> surprising to anybody? It's an interesting part of the story, but it wasn't my like one of my top 10 takeaways. I'll put it that way. Uh, our next guest hosts the Bad and Bitchy podcast. She's a columnist for Hill Times as well. Erica Eiffel joins us now. I know you were um, you had a harrowing weekend. You probably didn't even have any time to enjoy uh, Dak Prescott and the Cowboys offense, uh, you know, getting stopped time and time again at air. I'm pulling for the – I want them to get there. I hate Aaron Rodgers. I do. <laughs> the only thing I, – I actually did get um, – a piece of the Chargers game, and they look impressive. Yeah, yeah they, they look keep... disciplined. Yeah, they've had a lot of. Dare st- I say it? That Chargers fans don't like to get too. They're like Vikings fans, you know. They don't like to get too excited. Eventually, like the Arizona fans. Yeah, they usually choke at the end. That's yeah. it. Uh-huh. Eventually, you're going to be uh, tragically, tragically disappointed. Um, I know you were you were talking about Fridays. Fridays verdict left a uh, just a pit in the stomach of of a lot of us do you distinguish between the verdict and the you know laws that led us to get there how we all feel weird in the states with people that can carry weapons around we feel weird about how and when they can use them um that's as much of a problem changing the whole damn system as the verdict or do i have that wrong well i mean you can have both Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think the weapons charge, or just, like dropping the weapons charge, was questionable to me. Um, but on the other hand, um, this is an open carry state, right? And I used to live in an open carry state, actually. So, uh, in terms of, here's the thing: the whole idea of Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, uh, fearing for his life or self-defense or whatever, the whole premise is is problematic to me because this was a kid who was literally patrolling the streets with other, like, groups that were far-right-like. And I, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to believe that me, as a black woman, seeing that kid coming down the street is it with an AK-47 with other people like him, I'm supposed to, I'm supposed to believe that he fares for his safety because I sure as hell fear for mine. I know. And I don't know how we get there. And I, and I know, and you know that walking around, walking downtown Toronto, downtown Ottawa, find a smaller city of, you know, downtown Guelph that I know how you'd feel. I know how I'd feel. Nobody would ever want Canada to become like that, but is, has the horse left the barn already? Is there any way any way in America where it's at right now. It's not the same country it was when I lived there, and I haven't lived there since late 2007. And you might say the same now. Some of the seeds were already there, and some of the systems yeah. of law and justice were certainly already there, but I don't know how we, t- I don't know how we reverse course here. Okay, a few things. Number one, can we remember how the Kenosha uprisings happened? The fact is, is that underlying all this is the police shooting of an unarmed black man in the back who also claimed self-defense, even though he had a gun and he shot the man in the back four times, three times in the side. So let's remember that. That's how this all started. So this started with an injustice. Okay. And that's the point. I think we're forgetting the whole point of justice and injustices and injustices lead to Uh, protests as are happening now, which lead to white fear and white fear of protests of injustices against black people is palpable. And it is, it crosses the 49th parallel. So how politics reacts or how white politics reacts is 
more law enforcement and have the ju- the verdicts that we have today. This is a white lash. It is not justice. It's a white lash. It is fear. And white fear puts all of us in peril. I'm because glad- basically what we're saying is that this kid um, can now, and anybody else, can now interpret some an injustice as fear and take matters into their own hands and they'll be fine because I would like to see that personally. Um, Colin Kaepernick had some words to say about the white supremacy of, um, of the American legal system. I would, I would tell Canadians not to get too um, proud about Canada, because let me tell you something. I live in Hindenburg in Ottawa in 2016 a black man was beaten to death by a police officer who was just, who got off and and a police force that sold bracelets to support him so what does that tell you yeah yeah, we've got huge problems with SIU and police. We've got huge problems, obviously, in the Canadian military. I agree. Listen, we're not innocent bystanders, not by a long shot. And it's one of those scenarios, too, where I, I you know, the Jacob Blake thing, I think people forget, too, Erica, given we were talking about something as trivial as sports earlier on, is that's that's when NBA players stopped playing. They didn't play. Yeah. They didn't stop when George Floyd was murdered. They were concerned about it. Many of them talked about it publicly. But the game stopped in the NBA. And and Major League Baseball when Jacob Blake was shot. Now, listen, I would tell you, um, a, a woman who, and you know this, a woman he, he'd allegedly sexually assaulted, called police, asked for protection. You can't let yeah. him leave, but you don't shoot him. You have to find, yeah, you mean, have to find a middle ground, and you can't shoot him yeah. four times in the back. You have to find a way that is not that. No doubt about it. Exactly. Oh, here's my, here's my last point. Um, the reason that America's here is because the Democrat, both the Democrats and Republicans are slaves to the Second Amendment. And um, there is, there seems to be a lack of conscience around that. There seems to be no checks and balances for the Second Amendment. And I mean, even it has its limitations. So I, I, I don't know. So that's particular about American culture um, is that in their constitution, you have that Second Amendment. But, you know, if Democrats want to sit here and say, oh, well, the gun problem has gotten so... I mean, they were there when these, when these laws were forming. They were there. It's not like they were there. And a lot of the time, you had bipartisan support for a lot of these, maybe not the ultimate law, but the beginning and the legislative process. So everybody has blood on their hands in this. And there isn't the courage to do it. There's not the courage for, for Democratic. Li- you think Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer are going to do something different than they did no, 20? They're, they're not. And yeah. to be perfectly honest, I always thought there were more aggressive moments that President Obama could have had about gun legislation. I know how emotional he gets, but I also think it's that sense of, throws his arm up in the air and says, I, I, I can't convince the people on my side. So how far do I go over that edge to do that? And it's a huge, huge exactly. political backlash. That exactly. Was- Dr. Eric Cam joins me now. You often hear him on the Roy Green Show uh, across uh, our Chorus Radio Network, including right here on this station between uh, 2 and 5 o'clock on Saturday and Sunday. You're like me. Well, I shouldn't say that. That's a tough opening line for you to you to match. You're similar to me in that uh, you weren't alive for uh, JFK, but it, it just it hung over basically all of the 70s and 80s. Now, I remember being in history class in high school talking about the 25th anniversary of it, the Oliver Stone movie. Pretty, pretty touchstone moment in our culture, isn't it? Well, it's funny that you do compare you and me, and I'll tell you why. Number one, I have no life either. So thank you. I spend most of my waking hours watching YouTube, and I've probably watched that YouTube video of Walter Cronkite live announcing Kennedy's death where he starts to cry. I've probably seen that about 25 times. I find it more riveting each and every time because, as you so accurately put it, I was born in 1967, so I have no memories of 1963. But as a history buff, um, I try to put myself back in the moment and I try to do the 9-11 thing and wonder, 
just how much would it have affected my life and just how much would watching a country and really the world pivot on one event have changed me. But since you did bring it up and mm -hmm. I have time to kill, let mm -hmm. me tell you a little bit. When I was a little guy, the first thing that I remember politically coming out of the United States was Nixon resigning. That's really my first political memory. And it didn't really bring JFK into the picture until 1980. Now, in 1980, you know full well that I was watching Monday Night Football early in December when Howard Cosell revealed that John Lennon had been assassinated. And you say, what do those two things have in common? Well, the next day I went to Don Valley Middle School where all of my teachers were in tears and they were crying and they were sad. And what they did is I think for me, the two events became in a sense conflated. The murder of JFK and the murder of John Lennon. And I'll tell you why. Because most of my teachers, I'd say, I'd say 85% of my teachers were what I would call team liberal. They would have supported JFK. They loved John Lennon, anti-war, peace, civil rights, anti-religion in the classroom. But then there was that small, very older teacher majority, minority, I'm sorry, that would have been called Republicans today. And they were anti-hippie, anti-communist, really anti-everything that you and I hold dear. So for me, the JFK murder, the only way that I can think of it in real terms is to conflate it with Lenin's assassination because they kind of went together in who one of them it would have been either or none well we and I, I described it i described the 70s and early 80s not when it ended as very much an assassination era we were waiting you know for the next big thing it, it could even be anwar sadat in egypt like you were just waiting for indira gandhi was assassinated look at the the hinckley attempt on reagan's life you kind of you were shocked but you shrugged your shoulders because guess what john lennon had been four months earlier and you were just like this stuff just happens now. It's a little it's not unlike um, the insanity that the news cycle is now. But back then, things just seemed to move a lot slower. And yet when guns were involved and famous people were involved, there was there were some stress points. There was way too many assassinations. Many of us remember vividly watching Anwar Sadat die yeah, on do. television one early Saturday morning. And it was horrific. And then, you know, another seminal moment, you mentioned Hinckley assassinating or trying to assassinate Ronald Reagan. Of course, he survived, was that that is when Saturday Night Live took over. And you knew that when Saturday Night Live was parodying something so horrific as a murder attempt, you knew that it had become somewhat normalized. I don't know if you remember You're referencing they, the assassination they, attempt of Buckwheat. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah, when they did right. who shot Buckwheat. And you know what? Sadly, it was hysterical. It was absolutely <laughs> hysterical when they went over who shot Buckwheat over and over. But you knew you knew the world had turned a page that this had become normal, natural, and we could laugh at it. And nobody laughed when Anwar Sadat died and no one laughed when Indira Gandhi was assassinated. Mm -hmm. Nobody laughed until Saturday that it was OK to laugh. Uh, Dr. Eric Camp joining us from uh, Ryerson University. Um, I want to get to a couple economic is issues, but did you? I had a um, I, I had a lot of arguments with my dad. My dad is a uh, was a history teacher. He was obviously he was 19 when Kennedy was killed, um, and he is adamant that Oswald acted alone. I've done a lot of reading, and I'm no conspiracy, uh, you know, tinfoil nut bar. Thank you. But I would also I, I, I just I didn't buy it. And it was before the Stone movie that I didn't buy it. Do you have a Kennedy theory? Well, you know, my Kennedy theory is worth what you paid for it, which if the listeners are curious is nothing. Yeah, um, I find it after. By the way, I went to Dallas because I went to watch Miami lose to Dallas on a last second field goal. And when I was in Dallas, I went to the um, the museum where you go up in in the uh, in the book building and you go up to the floor. And now where Oswald apparently shot Kennedy is closed off in glass. You can't get in. But I did do the tour and it took a couple of hours and it was absolutely fascinating. And I watched JFK and I've done a lot of reading. And again, what I'm about to say is actually worth nothing. But I find it very hard to believe one lone gunman took out John F. Kennedy. I mean, they've really proven that this guy wasn't exactly a Mensa member. And somehow to wipe out the president of the United States seems to me to be a bigger operation than what Lee Harvey Oswald could have done on his own. And 
And I might add another wonderful piece of footage on YouTube, if you can find it, is when Jack Ruby killed him. That's right. That's right. In the basement of the police building. And so for me, I go, okay, so they get some yuts, for lack of a better word, to allegedly pull the trigger, kill the president of the United States. And then, oh, yeah, just for convenience sake, we blew him away in the basement before he could even make a statement other than I'm just a patsy. So you know what? I'm not a conspiracy theory either. I don't know if I'm not crazy, but I'm not a conspiracy theorist. But I find it really hard to believe Lee Harvey Oswald, on his own volition, took out the president. I of the absolutely. United I've never believed it. I've never believed it. And and by the way, Ruby's not, you know, he's also or, you know, he's a cl- nightclub owner. He's crazy involved with major figures in organized crime. And it's been proven not just in the Stone movie that Ruby and Oswald had had meetings before and knew each other. So there's just a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of things that you've got to suspend your usual deduction of reason for to think that Oswald did all this himself. Well, you know what? I really enjoyed the JFK movie. I watched it in Montreal one day and I've seen it many times since. But what I came away from the from JFK was, number one, thinking Oliver Stone's a very busy man to do the research he did to pull that thing together, get the stars he did. But well, cocaine's a hell of a drug. You th- think about what you and I could accomplish on it, but whatever. Well, yeah, we could put together at least two or three minutes okay. of startling you, video, but you, your lectures what, would become five hours, not two to the to the demise oh, of your students, I think also. Yeah. And that's and that's wanted by that's wanted right. by no student ever. But I will say that when I after I watched JFK, I remember thinking to myself, OK, this probably all isn't true. But, Greg, if 10 percent of the damn movie is true, you know, there's some conspiracy somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. All of that. Um, House of Commons today, I got about 90 seconds, but House of Commons today, inflation. How much can the O'Toole conservatives dig in on Justin Trudeau for the rising price of goods, for our rising? De- How much of the uh, we're, we're not terribly focused on economics, 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 but can the conservatives push Justin Trudeau and Christopher Freeland around and say, how are we paying for everything based on the last 18 months? Well, as Roy Green and I discussed yesterday from 4.30 to 5 o'clock, the answer is not very much. I mean, this is the problem with being in opposition. You can yell and you can scream, but at the end of the day, I don't know what kind of influence they can have other than, you know, in a sense, raise the roof on the topic and keep it uh, in the front of people's minds and in the government's minds. The opposition, no opposition party in the history of this country has ever created any policy that I'm aware of. The best that they can do is just keep slinging mud. And I hope that they do. I hope that they do sling mud because I hope that people now, when a year and a half ago, when people like me were on the radio saying, we've got to be careful with CERB, we have to be careful with the amount of money we are printing. And people said, don't be so um, catastrophic and don't be so negative. We've got to do this to keep people's lives afloat. And I didn't deny that. What I said was, is that every economic action has an economic reaction. And the only legitimate reaction to this is going to be inflation. So mm-hmm. now that prices going are going up to the tune about a percent a month and food is up about 50%. If you haven't been to the grocery store, you better need to take a Valium before you walk in. So the answer to your question is, what can the opposition party do? Hopefully it can hold the government, as they say, put their feet to the fire. And hopefully the government can then sit with the Bank of Canada and say, what are we going to do? Because this is eroding people's purchasing power. This is eroding people's retirement. And you, Central Bank, Dr. Macklem, who's a friend of mine and I respect him, we have to go back to those good old days of inflation fighting and bringing the rate of inflation back to about 2%. Because you know what? people's wages, everything that people earn, the money in their wallets is becoming worthless and worthless by the hour. And we have to go back to remembering that economics Mm -hmm. is about people and people have to be able to afford goods. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Oh, things are too expensive, so I won't spend. And then we see those those aren't just rip, you know, light waves of ripple effects. Those are tsunami type waves when people just sit on their money and won't spend and won't travel. And what, especially next spring and summer when we hope things are a lot more normal. Loved having you. Thanks very much. We got, we'll talk soon. Stay healthy, Greg. Dr. Eric Cam, our guest from Ryerson University. 
So if you just focused on international relations and all the layers of international intrigue and uh, how would I put it, bubbling conflicts right now, um, you'd have a you'd have a full day as it was. You re- you really wouldn't have to worry about anything in your municipality, anything provincial, anything that just was within your own borders. Issues with Russia and Ukraine right now, issues with China and Taiwan and China and Hong Kong that have been there forever. And all hey, if, even if you're a sports fan, this intersects. You may have seen the video yesterday or the photo of um, of the IOC president having a video call with uh, tennis player Peng Shui, who was deemed missing, who raised serious questions of uh, sexual assault allegations against a high-ranking Chinese government official. I know it was misunderstood by some media sources. This was about a coach or a fellow player. No, no, no. This, this guy, man, is in the Chinese government. And all of a sudden, we didn't hear from Peng Shui for a while. Now, listen, no element of her speaking out right now will satisfy some, but um, the IOC's incredibly also getting accused of a bit of a a publicity stunt over this particular video and you're like in the ioc a publicity stunt well i never right all that would factor in um so there was a huge security conference in halifax over the weekend very pleased to welcome in our next guest who was there uh, front and center in beautiful halifax uh covering it justin ling joins us now on toronto today it's great to have you on i'm sure you enjoyed halifax who doesn't enjoy halifax at the best of times or even the most mediocre of times Oh, yeah, absolutely. This, that's home for me. So Halifax is always uh, a, a nice little getaway. How did the city, I mean, it, obviously when we have a G7 or a G20 in Toronto, it ranch, ratchets up and everybody feels it. Did uh, did at the average Halifax resident feel something quite um, different and uh, overly secure, if you will, was going on? <laughs> I don't think necessarily. I mean, um, you know, what's nice about the forum, you know, on one hand, it doesn't try to make too much of a footprint onto Halifax. You'll certainly see a lot of people in suits and military regalia uh, wandering around with lanyards on. Um, But it also doesn't disrupt traffic too badly. It doesn't, uh, you don't see police out in huge forces uh, telling people that they can't go downtown or anything like that. Um, You know, I think it's it's a nice little... uh, Weekend for a ton of Halifax businesses. They have a whole bunch of new clients, especially ones with money. Um, but, but generally speaking, I think a ton of people in Halifax could go the whole weekend without ever even knowing uh, there was a big security conference going on. Uh, they, we, we tend to stay in our own little quarter of downtown. Did all these um, all these U.S. senators appear in person or were any of them virtual? I know six or seven big names there. Tim Kaine, who obviously ran on Hillary Clinton's ticket in 2016. Mm-hmm. Were they all there in person? Yeah, everyone. This was entirely in person. It's like one of the first, you know, real, proper, fully in person, not hybrid uh, conferences of of the COVID era, which it felt strangely normal. Um, you had actually a surprisingly big bipartisan uh, congressional delegation. Um, you had Jody Ernst. You had uh, Senator uh, Robert Wicker. You had, like you said, Tim Kaine. You had mm-hmm. Chris Coons, who's very close to President uh, Joe Biden. Uh, so this is a really kind of big cross section. Um, uh, Senator Gene Shaheen, um, big cross section of uh, both the U.S. Foreign Affairs uh, Committee uh, in the Senate, uh, the Armed Services Committee, and the Intelligence Committee. Um, so, you know, this is a this is a pretty significant uh, delegation, um, and and you know, this is a big part of what Halifax is. I mean, it's it, it's getting um, you know a ton of frankly really important people into a room and mm. you know letting them. Um, you know, just think about big ideas on stage, but also giving them a chance to get some meetings in. You know, half of the form are, you know, closed door meetings between, um, you know, top NATO officials, maybe the, the congressional delegation, um, you know, officials from um, throughout Europe, uh, South America, um, throughout Africa, uh, as well as kind of civil society opposition groups, dissidents from Russia, uh, India, China, elsewhere. Um, and uh, so it's, it's a really useful event, and there's a reason why the, that congressional delegation keeps coming back every year. Mm. Justin Ling, our guest on Toronto Today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. I'm guessing China and Russia, uh, separate of each other, but uh, no greater or no less a, a conversation point, um, took up much of the oxygen over the weekend. Yeah, that, that, that's fair to say. You know, I, I think China is becoming bigger and bigger as kind of the centerpiece of the forum, as, as it would in you know, any major security conference or a national security oriented meeting anywhere right now. Um, you know, in particular, you actually heard from the vice chief for space operations from the, uh, the Space Force, um, the General Thompson, who, who broke down, 
in really kind of granular and surprisingly, uh, you know, worrying detail, um, exactly where the Russians and Chinese are at in terms um, of of advancing uh, hypersonic missiles, uh, for one, um, you know, as well as some advances in cyber and and anti satellite technology. And you know, what was useful about it is that I think a lot of people would see this form from the outside and assume there's some sort of Cold War mindset, some sort of you know intense paranoia, some sort of um, you know maybe uh, you know uh, arms race mentality to it. But the really you know that that is not the tone you get when you sit and listen to these guys. I mean, you know, General Thompson was was really kind of pointing out the ways in which um, you know these advances, which generally speaking NATO has not focused on in the last several decades, these advances actually pose a real um, you know, threat for global security, but also for, for just general global communications. I mean, we're in a spot now where NATO allies, Western countries, have to start worrying about what would happen if Russia decides to start uh, knocking out either in a limited way or a kind of global way uh, communication satellites. You know, there's a real possibility that all of our communications could go offline for an you know in indefinite period of time were Russia to decide to. Um, start really messing around in space. You know, we have a problem of, of you know, not really uh, having a defense for Chinese hypersonic weapons. You know, we don't know what we do if they launched one. There's no way to predict where it'll go. You know, this sort of stuff is 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 deeply you know disconcerting. But you know, it's useful to even have a room where you can kind of sit and crunch through these ideas. Um, and I know that uh, a lot of people in the room left sort of you know, wide-eyed and, uh, you know, I think we'll bring it back home and, and start you know, thinking properly about, you know, what, what comes next. Yeah, it's interesting. It's so interesting you say that. And I saw those tones sort of crop up at the conference on the weekend. And, and we always obviously we'd always have conversations about North Korea. We always would about them developing this weapon and testing this weapon. It made everybody uh, relatively uncomfortable, uh, although I would say the, the late comedian Norm Macdonald was on one of the last Letterman episodes and he's his last stand-up on there was like, do you really? Do you wake up in the middle and like, oh my God, North Korea? Because they're not exactly a world superpower. And a lot of this just seems to be ego of the dictatorial leader. But China with hypersonic weapons uh, casts a different uh, casts a different shadow, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, and, and uh, you know, and I, I think Norm MacDonald is, you know, was right like he so often was. Um, you know, North Korea presents a threat, but one that could be you know, fairly easy, easily mitigated. Um, General Thompson made this really sort of a terrifying analogy. Um, you know, he, he basically says, you know, normal, a normal missile is like a snowball, right? You know, it's going to observe all of the, um, you know, the, 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 the tenets of, of, of physics. Um, if, if, you, if, you're, if you have an engineering degree, it's not hard to figure out that uh, based on how hard to throw it, where you throw it from, what angle it's going, it's going gonna, it's gonna to land in a certain spot and you can do that math. Um, mm-hmm. The way he basically you know described hypersonic missiles is you know imagine throwing that snowball and it starts heading around the world you know five times the speed of sound and it will come back to the you know any spot on the globe um, with you know with terrifying accuracy within you know the span of, of of you know hours if not minutes and you you won't really know where it's going to land until it's just about to land. Um, that is a problem mm. that you know, not even for an, you know an offensive capability. That's a really hard thing to defend against. Yes. Um, and you know, I think, and I think there's a you know a good point to be made that NATO is currently just trying to figure out how to defend itself. Never mind uh, anything in the offensive space. The one aspect as well, I got about a minute here, but I want you to be able to flesh out flesh it out for us. Uh, is Canada getting urged? I thought this was interesting that the former president of Ukraine wants Canada to help. Ukraine bid to be in NATO. And we wouldn't think, well, Ukraine geographically being in NATO, that makes no sense. But that's that's the tension point, isn't it? With Russian forces on the border with Ukraine. And there's a new, you know, there's a renewed energy to this particular discussion with Ukraine wanting basically, I, I would argue, protection, Western military and security protection from what Russia could advance upon them. Yeah. Just in the last 24 hours, we've seen a report uh, from uh, Bloomberg News Citing U.S. intelligence and uh, sources saying that um, there's a significant new buildup along the uh, along the Ukrainian border on the Russian side. Um, you know, this is above and beyond the buildup that started occurring uh, in the past several months. You've seen possibly 10,000 or more uh, reservists called up from the, uh, the Russian uh, forces to to man those front lines, which suggests that Putin is is maybe not actually you know planning an imminent invasion, but at the very least is putting it on the table. Um, this is increasing pressure on Ukraine. Things in the Donetsk region are already getting uh, going from bad to worse, um, and and it's, 
see it's pushing Ukraine to ask for some kind of you know more proper assurance. The That's... request uh, to submit Kiev to uh, NATO has been around for for some years now. Um, I think the urgency is increasing. I, though, frankly, don't know why they would ask Canada. Canada has not staked out a novel position either in NATO or really anywhere in years. Um, Canada, for all intents and purposes, does not have a independent foreign policy. We have not in some time. Um, they would be much better off going to the UK or Germany, US or elsewhere. Um, but I appreciate the optimism of their request. Frankly, I don't think it's likely. Um, I do think it's possible. You know, you saw um, a number of um, NATO officials over this weekend say, you know, that uh, an, an expanded presence in eastern Ukraine could be on the table uh, in the imminent future. But uh, I think that'll be a decision you see made kind of more broadly. I don't see Canada staking out its own position on it. Yeah, it's not. I, it's hard to see. Also, it's not what we'd want. And uh, and we're probably happy to follow suit. But uh, yeah. but that, that it's it's to, to stick your toe in the water first is a different story. A brilliant yeah. stuff. Wouldn't expect anything less. Big fan of your work. Thanks, Justin, for uh, for covering this and doing such a great job in Halifax and, and chatting with us about it. Thanks so much. Next guest is uh, the NDP Member of Parliament for Timmins, James Bay. Starts another session, if you will, in the House of Commons later today. But a lot of issues we want to get uh, with to him. We always appreciate his time on the show. Uh, welcome in Charlie Angus to Toronto today. It's great to have you on, Charlie. I appreciate the time as always. Hey, thanks so much for having me back on the show. This is like a rookie camp for 49 uh, MPs today. Um, give, uh, give us the lay of the land, what that first day is like, a little unsettled. There's a speaker to be elected. There's there's business to be done. And, and Parliament hasn't sat in so very long, have they? Well, this is going to be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, uh, the prime minister called this snap election because he really needed to get down to work and then nothing happened. So um, we're finally back at it. Today is the election of the speaker. There's a whole bunch of people who want to be speaker. And that's deciding who gets to put on the ref jersey is really a big move because you need someone really independent. Anthony Rhoda, liberal, chosen last time. Mm -hmm. His own government took him to court to try and stop him from releasing documents because Anthony Rhoda is a liberal, but he doesn't represent the liberal party. He represents all parliamentarians. So it's a minority government. So uh, it depends on how the cards get played as to who's going to be that um, the ref who's going to lay down the rules of this parliament. So Monday will be it's going to be a little chaotic. I'm sure that the uh, the new members are going to be wondering, why do we keep having to walk around and make these weird votes? We've got to do it in this weird circle and stuff. But uh, that that will be today. And then tomorrow we will start getting down to action. I know you mentioned uh, over the weekend and, and you mentioned on your social media uh, for for the relatives of those who attended St. Anne's Residential School, and that's in Fort Albany, Ontario. That's one of the later ones um, for, for our listeners that closed up. It uh, it went for 70 years, went till 1976. This is the kind of school, Charlie, that um, my parents who were in their 70s talk about and they say, um, we missed this one. We feel we felt like we were, you know, politically conscious, socially astute, but we didn't know what was happening there. And uh, survivors and relatives of survivors of that school um, have a Zoom meeting a little later on today online. That's fairly important, isn't it? Well, what it is actually is this is Ontario Superior Court. So it's so ironic that on the first day of the new parliament where Justin Trudeau is laying out his new vision, Survivors of St. Anne's Residential School are back in court fighting the government again. They've been fighting the government for over nine years. And what this is about is St. Anne's, uh, you know, your parents, my parents, none of us knew what was going on there. Mm -hmm. it, it was one of the most sick, evil institutions you could imagine. They tortured kids for kicks, rape, torture, uh, all kinds of abuse went on there. And when the survivors went to the hearings, uh, the government told them, just come in and tell your story. Well, what the survivors weren't told was that the government of Canada, the Justice Department, hid 10,000 pages of police evidence. They, may, they knew who all the perpetrators were. They knew who the criminals were. They had all the witness statements. And they went in and told these survivors, sorry, your story doesn't make sense. We don't believe you. How does that happen in Canada? So we are in court again. So what we're inviting people, there's a Zoom uh, you can watch the hearings on Zoom. And this is putting a lot of pressure on the government. This is certainly damaged Carolyn Bennett's reputation permanently. And I've been saying to the government, just fix this. You guys knew you suppressed the evidence. The survivors are getting old. It traumatizes people. Just sit down and fix it. This is what we were calling on the government to do. Like, stop with the legal games. 
just do the right thing, and then Canadians and Indigenous people can move on. Yeah, St. Anne's in a word, um, I think notorious is the word many people ha- have used for what transpired there. And before the court today, and, and they obviously can't get to all of them today, 81 compensation cases, which is it's just a staggering number that it gets to that particular point. There's obviously, you know, several hundred nationwide, but 81 just with this school alone, Charlie. Yeah, at least 81 cases were falsely heard. So that's a massive miscarriage of justice in any other area of Canadian legal life where such undermining of the legal system happened, I mean, heads would roll. And yet, you know, St. Anne's survivors often couldn't even afford the bus fare to go to their own hearings. uh, And they're going up against the mass power of the Justice Department. So I've said to Mark Miller, you're the new minister. You wear this from now on. You fix it. You're going to people say right on, Mark. Uh, you don't. You send your lawyers in. It's going to damage this government. It's going to continue to damage them. So they got to they got to settle this thing. NDP MP Charlie Angus joining us on Toronto today with Greg Brady on Global News Radio six forty Toronto. People must come up to you and they must say, "What's your what's your best guess? What's an educated guess as to why uh, the government's doing this?" It's pretty easy to write a check. It's pretty easy to write a check from anybody from any political affiliation and look like you're gaining a PR win. Neither of these things are getting accomplished here, whether it's meaningful or not. People do want compensation for their suffering, and that's fair. That's what our system allows for and provides for. What's the best educated guess as to why this has taken forever and why it's why it's being stonewalled? Well, this is such a good question. I have thought, okay, who are they hiding? Who are they protecting? We know that Jean Chrétien stepped in this recently. Jean Chrétien said he didn't know anything was going on when we've actually got letters from teachers writing to him about St. Anne's, begging him, and he wouldn't do anything. But I think at the end of the day, you know, we know that the Department of Indian Affairs is the most incompetent, rotten system that ever was set up in order to deny Indigenous people, um, you know, access to proper education, waters, and, you know, you name it, they failed. But it's the Justice Department that people don't pay attention to. The Justice Department is the brass knuckles of the federal government in stopping Indigenous rights. The problem is, is that they keep losing these cases and the bill goes up for the Canadian people, but they have an enormous amount of power. And I think it's their ego. They suppress the evidence. They don't want to look like they did the wrong thing. I think the ministers get led around by the nose. And, and for government, it's at the end of the day, it's their job to say, whoa, this is the way it's been done. This is not the way it's going to be done. And, you know, Jody Wilson-Raybould, Indigenous Justice Minister, who got tossed out by Mr. Trudeau, one of the last things she did before she was got the toss, was to say, we have to have a new system in place so we're not going to court, you know, all the time. We're actually sit down and try and figure out a solution. That's what Canadians want. That's, that's the way we want things done. Uh, but we got we got some pretty powerful uh, players who don't want to do that. I know you commented uh, as well on social media on the uh, the arrest and attainment of two reporters by RCMP in, in British Columbia Friday night. Um, have you been able to glean more information about exactly what transpired here? Uh, were these people misrecognized as as protesters? And and of course, the RCMP has a responsibility and they've got a jurisdiction to stop illegal acts. But it doesn't look like that's what was transpiring here um, based on uh, these two journalists and, and many accounts of those who were working with them. Yeah, I'm very concerned about this. So this is the West Wedowin pipeline protest. This is a very hot issue. Um, you know, I've been careful on this because there are people all over who have different views. And in a tense situation, I want to make sure I'm saying the right thing. Mm-hmm. What I found really concerning is if you have journalists covering these events, you can't arrest the journalists to shut the story down. And that's what it seems the RCMP did. And I'm taking this from, you know, you know, the Canadian Association of Journalists have been speaking out. Other independent media have been speaking out. So my message to the RCMP is if you're enforcing the law, there have to be witnesses. Uh, you can't, and the witnesses are journalists. So you can't be arresting them uh, to take them out of the story. And I, I, I'm urging both the provincial and federal government to talk to the RCMP, say, in Canada, the independence of journalists to cover these very complex and explosive stories. They have to be allowed to do their job. Could this come up today um, in the House of Commons? Marco Mendicino is the Minister of Public Safety. Um, I haven't seen comment, and that doesn't mean there hasn't been. I'm just saying that I haven't seen it. But uh, but he'd, he'd have jurisdiction over the RCMP on these particular charges, I believe. 
Well, this is certainly going to come up for Mr. Mendocino. He's going to have a, his, his hands full, although, I mean, the other thing with Mr. Mendocino, he's announced in two months, unvaccinated athletes are not going to be allowed into Canada. I mean, come on, Marco. Like, well, what, what's with that? <laughs> so he, I mean, that's, that's the N- NBA players that aren't necessarily vaccinated, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like, God, you can't go into Eastside Mario's, but they're letting people in the country. Come on, Marco, you're going to do this six or two months. Anyways, that's my side, my side rant. But uh, Marco's going to have his hands full. Mm-hmm. Charlie, thanks for letting us check in with you on a couple of these important issues. Uh, and uh, today, a historic day in the House of Commons, speaker to be elected, et cetera, et cetera, through the process. Thanks for uh, weighing in on our show on these issues. Okay, thank you so much. You take care. You bet. Charlie Angus uh, joining us, uh, NDP MP for Timmins, uh, James Bay. Okay, it's like rookie camp a little bit at the House of Commons a little later on today uh, in Ottawa, our nation's capital. 49 rookie MPs uh, take to the floor, and uh, there's some stories behind some of them, that's for sure. Putting it all in perspective for us, uh, you see him on Global News all the time. He is Chief Political Correspondent uh, Nationwide, David Aikens. Great to have you back on the air here on Toronto Today. Thanks for making the time. Yep, no problem. And I've got my, my, my cards out. That's that MP. There's a new one there. I've, I've been trying to reach out. Yeah, you're 49. I mean, the parliament looks this, the big picture is it's a minority. It's the same mm-hmm. kind of minority we had like two months ago. It's just there's, you know, about 50 new players. Um, but the, the bottom line is the same. It's a minority Trudeau government. I'm seeing a lot of these names and, I, and you'd remember these names of, of uh, a lot of heavy hitters. I don't know. Some were surprising and some weren't. That's always the way it's going to be deciding not to run. Uh, Navdi Baines is one. Bob Bertino was the longtime uh, MP out in in Hamilton East. And there's other other pretty big names as well with Catherine McKenna, um, Adam Bond not going back, Kate Young in London. It, it was a, it was a lot of them. Maybe they thought COVID era. I've accomplished what I've wanted to. Um, best to step aside. But that's a big reason for the influx of new blood is a lot of the traditional incumbents just said, I'm, I'm going to do something else with my life. There was that, and then there was some changes. I mean, this is the thing that I think is interesting to watch, some of the drama. The Conservatives actually did pretty well in Atlantic Canada. Mm-hmm. They took some seats out. They stole some from some Liberals. So, you know, there you go. There's some that, – that's just plain old uh, horse trading. Quebec, bizarrely, there wasn't a single seat changed hands. You know, what is it, eight, 90 ridings in Quebec? Not a single seat changed hands, which I just find unbelievable. And in Ontario, there was some horse trading. Liberals took some seats. Uh, conservatives took another seat here or there. Again, a little bit of change out, uh, out west. Uh, liberals in B.C. came third in the popular vote. Won the most seats. There's your first pass the post system for you. You know that that uh, that's it's called an efficient vote. So yeah, there's been lots of change, and and now you know what what is the government going to do with that? I think one of the things they're going to address right off the bat is some affordability issues. I mean, they're going to address COVID and, and the pandemic first. I think that's a given. Every government is still dealing with COVID, and we saw. The first pediatric vaccines arrive in the country yesterday. Um, so that's the federal government that buys the vaccines. They'll ship them out to the rest of the country. But beyond that, I think the government's got to pay attention to inflation. It's at a 30-year high. We had a poll out over the weekend from our friends at Ipsos that says affordability and cost of living is the number one issue among voters. Number one. Number two is pandemic. So I think the government's got to pay attention to that. Sort of related to that would be affordability of housing, availability of housing. This is the first parliament with a housing minister. We've never had a minister of housing, you know, specifically Mm -hmm. charged with housing. And that's Ahmed Hussein, the minister from, or the uh, MP from York Center, uh, uh, sorry, uh, York South. Uh, He uh, was in the cabinet last time around. He's back again. But again, I think it's a, a good hint that we're going to hear about housing this week because we have a minister of housing. So what is the prime minister going to tell Minister Hussein to do? We'll find out with the throne speech uh, tomorrow. Uh, today is the election of the speaker. That's the first thing that has to happen and uh, probably be a bit of drama in that. I, that's exactly where I wanted to go with you. David Aiken, chief political correspondent. Elizabeth May is one of those names uh, that want, that has put her uh, name in the hat for speaker, one of seven candidates. That would be really intriguing. She says, well, I could bring some impartiality to the job, and that might be accurate. But a lot obviously was in the media um, and some of it conjecture, but some of it also coming from her, you know, uh, her successor, Annamy Paul, and supporters of her saying she wasn't terribly supportive of the new leader. That, that would be a really interesting choice, wouldn't it? 
Yeah, she's not going to be the Speaker of the House of Commons. I mean, she, she may uh, she may even withdraw before we get to the vote. It's most likely to be the incumbent, which is Anthony Rhoda. He's a Liberal MP from North Bay. I think, by and large, I think people thought he did a pretty good job in the last parliament, especially, you know, the weird last parliament, this high, hybrid parliament. And for the opposition, remember, he's a Liberal, but he the, the Liberal speaker ordered the government to produce some documents um, about the this this uh, security breach at a Winnipeg lab. The government sued the speaker. So anytime the opposition could get a speaker who's a liberal getting sued by liberals, well, that's a good speaker when the opposition <laughs> figures it out. They feel that he's been very fair. But there's six people running. But the bigger drama is this. Under the House of Commons rules, that that first meeting of MPs, that first meeting, that election of the speaker, you can only vote for the speaker if you show up in person in the House of Commons. Votes are, are secret. It's a preferential ballot, and you can only cast a ballot if you're physically in the chamber. The Conservatives and the Bloc want MPs in the House of Commons. Time to be back to work. We can do it safely. There's a rule that says every, va every MP in the House must be vaccinated. So the Bloc and the Conservatives want everyone in the House. And they will get that for the first speaker. But the Liberals and the New Democrats, they want that hybrid parliament we saw in the last one, which is some MPs, you know, zooming in, participating mm -hmm. remotely. Now, we can't do that rule change. It goes to a vote, not until there is a speaker, which is the complete in-person vote. So we will see a hybrid, I'm sure, parliament because Liberals and New Democrats will have the majority to force that rule change. But this whole background of MPs, in-person, whatever, comes against this. Certainly one MP that will not be in the House today is a Quebec MP, a conservative, Richard LaHue, because he's got COVID. We just learned about that on the weekend. He's fully vaccinated but got, got diagnosed with COVID. Now, they, the conservatives had a caucus meeting last week. Was LaHue near anybody? Does anybody else have to self-isolate who might have been near him? We don't know. We'll, we'll find out this aft. And the conservatives generally have been a bit cagey about whether or not their entire caucus is vaccinated or not. O'Toole, the leader, insists anybody in the House it will be vaccinated. But Mark Holland, the government House leader, the liberal government House leader, he's so suspicious of the quote-unquote honorable members across the way, he wants proof of vaccine. He wants to see the paperwork on the conservatives because he doesn't believe them. So that is starting things off, I think, on an odd footing at the very least, certainly not a footing where you expect some collegiality. That's That's the background for this you know, speaker's election, which is otherwise something really only political geeks like me care about. Yeah. But this is going to be a bigger deal because it's going to tell us about how was Parliament going to work, accountability, will MPs be there in person or not, what will be the rules going forward. And so um, it's a little more dramatic than uh, it might otherwise be. Well, and I think lastly, he brought it up, uh, didn't he? Because he did exactly what um, what a couple um, rival MPPs brought up in Ontario when the Ford government was getting their party vaccinated. And all of a sudden, three medical exemptions popped up out of 73 and you're thinking like it, it that that's a pretty astronomical mathematical scenario that three of your 73 mpps qualify for a medical exemption when one in 800,000 people would in the general populace right yeah exactly so so that's again why mark holland who's going to speak to reporters a little later this morning about the return of parliament you know he's, he's going to talk to us about this and um it's an issue for Aaron O'Toole's leadership. I mean, should O'Toole be cracking the whip with his own caucus? Ford did, right? Ford kicked some people out of his mm -hmm. uh, caucus at Queen's Park when they um, either didn't tell the truth on vaccines or they didn't get vaccinated or they had a problem. Ford said he wasn't having any of it, and so, boom, they were out. O'Toole has not done that. O'Toole kicked out a senator out of the National Conservative Caucus, a senator from Saskatchewan, Denise Batters, but she got kicked out after she put out a video, you know, basically calling for O'Toole's head, I don't think that was the issue so much as what she said about him, saying he was dishonest and he couldn't be trusted and yada, yada, yada. And he said, right, you're out. So, so that, that's O'Toole trying to deal with the leadership issue. He can't kick an MP out. He can kick Senator out. Uh, but he can't kick an MP out because the Conservative caucus, one of the rules for their caucus is only the caucus can kick out an MP. There has to be a vote. So the liberal, the leader can't do it by himself. A leader can kick a Senator out, but not an MP. So this is, as I said, that's this is the drama we're going to have for the conservatives as they sort of have these internal divisions. And then we'll be watching the other sort of like, drama, I guess. It's a minority. So the liberals need a dance partner when it comes to, you know, confidence votes. Last parliament, it was usually the New Democrats, sometimes the Bloc Québécois. 
And the NDP and liberals have been talking. There's, there's no formal coalition. I know we heard those rumors a bit a while ago. No formal deal with the NDP and the liberals. But the NDP are pushing the liberals to extend some COVID supports to people who have not been able to get back in the workplace. Uh, you know, some tourism businesses, some hospitality businesses. They're still not up and running. The NDP is thinking about those folks. NDP thinking about some seniors who got their GIS cut off. The NDP feel in an unfair sort of ruling. So we'll see if the NDP can force that on the liberals. The liberals at some point are going to need somebody's help, and uh, that will be their first dance partner, Jugmeet Singh and the NDP. It's a day of high drama and getting things done. Parliament returns. Nobody better to speak to about it than Chief Political Correspondent for Global News, David Aiken. David, busy day for you. Thanks for spending time with us here on this show. Appreciate it. No problem. Cheers. Now, Sheba Siddiqui joins me now, and we wanted to talk about this Atlantic study a little bit earlier, uh, but my cat caught a mouse, so he put the important issue of uh, teenage (laughs) mental health aside uh, because I had to take a mouse in a tennis ball can and take him into the forest uh, before I came into work. But, I mean, I'm staring at this graph in in early part of this story, and the headline on the Atlantic, the dangerous experiment on teen girls, the preponderance of the evidence suggests social media is causing real damage to adolescents. And I'm really jarred by the difference between girls and boys um, age 12 to 17, who they say they self-report had at least one major depressive episode in the last year. It's massively, massively increasing for girls, just a moderate increase for boys in the last calendar year. This study is so concerning for me. So first of all, it showed that girls suffer from anxiety, depression, and self-harm, specifically the girls with the self-harm when they were on a website like Instagram. Now, they did so many... I mean, there are other, lots of other factors that play into this, but everything came back to the fact that they were on social media and specifically Instagram. Now, we know a lot of this, right? We see what Instagram's about. I mean, I used to be on it. I don't know if you're on it. And I just, I had to get off. And I, and I argue, Brady, it's not mm. just the teen girls. I know some superstar women who've just got it together, who are absolutely beautiful, who are doing amazing things in the world. And, I don't know. I just see these changes in them. All of a sudden, these women I know, they're feeling so um, insecure and questioning their appearances. And I feel like it's tied to Instagram. Like, do you even know what, do you know what lash, lash extensions are? No. Okay. So you go somewhere and someone actually puts an individual eyelash on your eyelashes that lasts for four, about four to six months. And then you go back and you replenish your eyelashes again and again and again. So things like lash extensions, things like, you know, lip fillers, Botox are just questioning their appearance. And I just feel it all comes back to this devil of a website. Well, don't you find I mean, I I have empathy when Naomi Osaka said I'm having issues, I'm having mental health problems. And but her social media use, I'm like, there has to be somebody there saying, you, you got to like log off, as we say, there's there's a um, credo in our business, right? Don't read the comments. And some of that is true, although you can learn things from interacting with the public. That said, Naomi Osaka's got to stop searching her name. Naomi Osaka's got to put the phone down. And uh, but I don't doubt that it's a generational thing. You see the study there. Twenty four percent of uh, of high school students say they are online, quote, almost constantly. That's a problem. I like I used to even when I used to wait tables. I'm thinking, how does anybody wait tables and not check their phone five times an hour? I couldn't have it in my pocket if I was doing kind of a manual labor job, construction, waiting tables, um, you know, being a, a police officer. You couldn't check your personal stuff. And we do it all the time. And what we do, we have to we do. Well, it's deemed OK. It's deemed acceptable now. Right. And, the, and in this study, specifically in this article, it states that the boys were more inclined to play the video games while the girls were on social media. So that right there is a huge difference. And I'm going to tell you a quick story. So yeah. my kids elementary school just banned cell phones. Now, they were just, they were out of control. They were being used in the classrooms all the time. So they didn't, you can bring your cell phone to school. You put it in a box in the classroom. At the end of the day, you can come get it. Now, who's in the biggest uproar of all of this? Parents. Parents are saying, how am I going to get in touch with my kid? I need to tell my kid something throughout the day. And the principal's saying, hey, just call the school. We'll relay the message. Exactly. And these kids are just, everybody's addicted to this technology and they don't see what it's doing. I mean, the teachers are in the classrooms, the kids all day, they see what's happening to these kids Mm. on these devices. There's so much more from this study. Let's flesh it out more tomorrow because that's, yeah, that, then it, it does come back to parental accountability and responsibility. And, and, uh, you, you're going to have to cut the cord at some point in time and mm-hmm. not have a constant, you know, tin can and string connection to your kid at a certain point in time. Cause when it comes to college, they don't want, <laughs> they don't want you texting in the middle of a lecture, uh, at two in the <laughs> afternoon. They want to, they want to sleep halfway through it. I'll put it that way. Uh, <laughs>
Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks very much for listening to the show, and we appreciate you finding us. Another live show tomorrow between 5.30 and 9 a.m. on Tuesday, November the 23rd. Uh, if you are finding us interesting and you want to rate us and subscribe, we would appreciate that as well. Have yourself a great Monday.